You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. The 20th Party Congress of China's Communist Party in Beijing is complete. It delivered more than what was predicted. In fact, it delivered outright shocks and surprises. As predicted, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping, was given an historic third term, elevating him to a level given only to one other leader in the PRC's history, Mao Zedong. But not everything went exactly to plan. One moment on the last day of the Congress in the Great Hall of the People went viral around the world. This is a sound of a video recorded from the press gallery. You can hear the other cameras clicking in the background. Former President Hu Jintao is sitting to the left of President Xi Jinping, and an aide is standing over his shoulder. The aide then moves to lift Hu Jintao out of his chair, but then Hu appears unwilling to get up. It is an awkward moment. The aide then convinces Hu to get out of his chair, assisting him up, but still seems reluctant to leave. And another aide comes over to talk to him. Just as he begins to leave, he leans down to President Xi Jinping and says something, to which Xi Jinping clearly responds. After weeks of opinion and analysis about how this weekend would finish this historic 20th Party Congress, the speculation, hot takes, and conspiracy theories went wild across social media. But history rose ever on. The 20th Party Congress did indeed reach its historic conclusions later that day. The 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China has successfully concluded. That's President Xi Jinping speaking, beginning an unprecedented third term and revealing a major shakeup at the very top of the Politburo Standing Committee and a change to the charter of the Chinese Communist Party. All the agendas of the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China have been completed today. With the joint efforts of all the delegates, the conference was a complete success. It has achieved the purpose of unifying thoughts, strengthening confidence, clarifying direction and inspiring fighting spirit. This is a conference to hold high the flag, gather strength and forge ahead in unity. But there were a lot of unofficial changes to the conventions, the traditions, and unwritten rules as well. Hello and welcome to the Inside China podcast and part two of our 20th Party Congress special. My name is Mimi Lau, and in this episode, you're going to hear from my colleagues on what this 20th Party Congress means for the direction of China's political and economic future, and what it means for this relationship with the rest of the world. So let me take you to our Beijing bureau, and you can hear from two of our editors about what just happened and what happens next. That's all. 
My June, the last time we spoke to you on this podcast, you were preparing to attend your first COVID zero uh, closed loop party congress. But let me start with the scene on Saturday that was beamed around the world. Were you watching as former President Hu Jintao was escorted from the room? What was the official reason given for his exit? I was not uh, at the closing ceremony myself, but I've definitely have watched that footage of him being escorted away uh, time after time just to get a better sense of it. And of course, you know, the um, uh, the official authorities almost never explained why, you know, the leaders had such interactions because, you know, this is something that the Chinese public would not see and, and, and this is something that would not be covered uh, uh, by Chinese media. But very uh, strangely, uh, after a lot of uh, foreign reporters obviously had a lot of discussions about uh, Hu Jintao being escorted away during the uh, closing ceremony, uh, the uh, official newswire Xinhua uh, filed uh, two tweets to say that according to what their reporters has learned, Hu Jintao was not feeling well that day. So uh, he left to get some rest and he was now he, he was feeling much better afterwards. So that was the official uh, explanation. But to any reporter who have uh, observed uh, Hu Jintao during that opening ceremony, which is a week before um, the closing ceremony. Uh, anyone can tell that he was not having the best focus. He was not reading the report a lot. And sometimes and he was just having a pretty hollow stare, um, you know, and looking ahead. And But uh, in the closing ceremony, I maybe I should also mention uh, that during the Xin Wen Lianbo, the 7 p.m. news broadcast that evening of the closing ceremony, uh, Hu Jintao was shown casting his ballot, uh, you know, along with other uh, retired uh, leaders. Uh, so I don't think that this, this episode of Hu Jintao being escorted away uh, carries too much political significance, uh, but it was it just looked you know plainly awkward uh, to whoever that was at the Great Hall of the People, uh, because uh, who seemed a little bit confused and you know he was not sure where he should go and until that security guards uh, show him um, uh, where he should go and and after before before he left he actually uh, said uh, you know obviously ha- has some greetings uh, with uh, President Xi Jinping and uh, Premier Li Keqiang. Yeah, uh, that moment definitely definitely was unscripted um, according to how things were planned and definitely stole. Uh, the spotlight momentarily from the whole party congress and uh, the thing is we don't really know what is going on but definitely that footage has stolen some spotlight from the party congress it became the talk of the internet all through the weekend even to this day but uh, I would like to just move on to what the world is focusing on right now that is the new lineup of national leadership so as we discussed last week, the plan was that she walked out with a, a team of new men selected for the Politburo Standing Committee. And the order of the men who walked behind him all carry some significant meaning. So can you take us through this moment and what has been revealed? 
First of all, uh, on Sunday morning, when President uh, Xi Jinping walked out with six other colleagues at the Standing Committee of the Politburo, uh, so that moment was the um, was actually the first time that the world will know the, who would sit on the top decision-making body that decides the trajectory of the second largest economy for the next five years. And as we all know, the Chinese politics uh, operate in a very opaque way. So when uh, Xi walked out with uh, six other members of the Politburo uh, Standing Committee, I think the biggest surprise to many was that Li Qiang, the uh, party chief of Shanghai, was ranked uh, the second and he was uh, the first one to follow. Well, maybe it was not so big a surprise to readers of the South China Morning Post because we already reported Li Qiang being promoted uh, a week before. But this somehow uh, did come as a surprise to the broader public because, you know, Li Qiang, of course, uh, everybody understand that uh, he has long been a uh, very closely associated with uh, President Xi Jinping. They had very close working relations during their days in Zhejiang in the 2000s. But Li Chang obviously suffered some serious setback during the two months long lockdown in Shanghai uh, when people especially in the uh, in the initial stage of the lockdown, had difficulty even securing their food supply. That was very controversial, locking down the international financial city of Shanghai. And Li Chang may not be very well known outside of China, but he was definitely made very well known because of what happened. So could you tell us how Li Chang is compared to the man who did his job before Li Keqiang? And why are we seeing a major market reaction after the lineup has been revealed? I think the market uh, reaction was basically based on this assumption that the premier's job would land on someone else. For instance, Wang Yang, who used to serve as a vice premier under Xi Jinping, and there was uh, Hu Chenhua, who uh, who has also served as a vice premier for the uh, past five years. So I think Li Qiang came as a surprise because he had never worked in the state council. And that was something that's pretty different from the way previous premiers had been promoted in, 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 the, pa- in the past decades. So in the past 40 years at least, all premiers uh, of the state council had to serve, first serve as a vice premier for at least five years. So the public would get to know them a little bit more, especially in their role as a leader of the state council. So uh, the new leader might himself get a little bit more familiar with the operation of uh, the state council and how to manage the economy on a national level. So uh, there were some expectation. So that was also true with Li Keqiang, uh, who is set to step down uh, next March as the premier. He worked as a vice premier for five years because before he was formally promoted as a premier. So I think with the traditional trajectory of promotion, uh, the public, uh, the Chinese public used to have a, you know, a better anticipation of who would uh, come to land on the top job of state council, which is the most important job in terms of managing the economy traditionally. Um, So I think that was part of the reason why uh, the public was caught a little bit uh, by surprise uh, of Li Chang's appointment. 
So you mentioned a lot of informal rules and norms have been broken by this uh, latest lineup. So what are the other norms and rules that are broken for this um, latest party congress? I would like to first add that, uh, you know, the party still has some time before next March to promote Li Chang first as a vice premier. And, uh, you know, maybe in the uh, maybe they can do that just any time, you know, in October, November, so that he just had a few months as a vice premier. And then he would move on to uh, the premiership next March. But still, even if the party did that, the transitional period, which would be at most five months, is still way shorter than the traditional five years. Uh, so that was one rule that they are bending. Uh, the other rules was in the past 20 years, as long as you're a member of the standing committee of the Politburo, and as long as you have not reached the age of 68 by the time that the Congress was held, you were automatically guaranteed another term. But that was not the case in the 20th Party Congress when both Li Keqiang and Wang Yang, the second and the fourth ranking member of the Politburo, they both retired uh, despite the fact that they had not reached their official retirement age. So that came as a quite a big surprise to many. And uh, another surprise was, of course, Gu Chunhua, who was a vice premier and who was once seen as a rising star and even front runner to land a job at the top leadership of the Communist Party. So he was squeezed out of the Politburo, despite the fact that he's still nine years shy of his unofficial retirement age on his level. So after he lost his Politburo seat, he's set to lose his vice premier job too. That's another surprise. Yeah, that was pretty extraordinary, considering that he has served two terms at the Politburo and losing a seat like that was um, definitely something the, the outside world was not expecting to see. So that makes the whole composition of the Politburo Standing Committee filled by entirely Xi's own core confidants. And what does that mean? for China's future governance? I think in the past 10 years, we have repeatedly seen uh, something similar, which is uh, people who are considered uh, to have come from a different background, such as uh, Premier Li Keqiang, uh, such as uh, Wang Yang, who is the head of the uh, uh, CPPCC, the country's top advisory body, there is a clear limit of the the there is a very clear limit of their influence over the general policies as long as she has uh, laid down his uh, vision uh, on 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 these policies. So I think that first of all there was some sort of misunderstanding, but I, there was also some wishes or some hopes uh, within the public that you know as long as there are people who have obviously come from a different background, they might play. Um, they might uh, play a role in so-called the checks and balance of Xi, even though she is considered the most powerful uh, uh, leader since uh, Deng Xiaoping, of course. Um, so that was the first thing that I wanted to uh, talk about. The second thing I wanted to talk about is even though she has promoted a lot of people who had closely worked with him, uh, he still has 
retain Wang Huning, who's who's you know the uh, ideology uh, uh, guru of the Communist Party, and who had served under three presidents, and um, and he also had promoted a bunch of. Uh, so-called politically neutral officials with heavy engineer uh, background and is somewhat neutral in terms of political factions, including Ma Xinrui, the former party chief of Guangdong, who's now the party chief of Xinjiang, including uh, Yuan Jiajun, uh, who uh, both of Ma Xinrui and Yuan Jiajun are from this aerospace background, and Zhang Guoqing, who's from a uh, national defense uh, background too. But I think I think the clear takeaway is after uh, they unveil the new leadership uh, this Sunday, we can basically see those limits or constraints, if there had been any, has already brought down to a minimum level. I would like to bring our discussion from the Politburo Standing Committee to the Politburo. This is the first time in 20 years that we are seeing an all-man Politburo lined up. In the past 20 years, there has always been at least one woman serving in the Politburo um, as vice premier. And we have seen there is Wu Yi, there is Liu Yandong, and then Sun Chunlan. So this continuity has been broken. And previously, Shen Yiqing, the Guizhou party secretary, has been tipped as the front runner to replace Sun Chunlan's position in the Politburo. Now that whatever small space that were carved for women to exercise their political power is now gone at the top level. That seems to be a very disappointing move for a lot of people in terms of a step backward for gender diversity. Are you surprised at all? Yes and no. <laughs> First of all, I think a lot of people are definitely surprised. Uh, first of all, I think, you know, the tradition uh, in the past 20 years that there has always been at least one woman in the Politburo. I think that practice in reality is understood to be more largely ceremonial um, because we all understand that this is, you know, just a gesture of political inclusiveness, uh, a gesture of we have some sort of diversity at the top leadership uh, of the Communist Party. But any political observer can tell you that uh, these women, their real power are still very, um, you know, not comparable with the men who have landed on more important jobs. For instance, in the most important uh, a few seats of the Communist Party, the pinnacle of the decision-making structure, which is the Politburo Standing Committee, we have never seen a woman landing in that body. And when a woman politician or two women politicians have been landed in the Politburo, they had always been given this some sort of you know, less important jobs in the Politburo. For instance, they are usually given a job as a vice premier, and usually their portfolio will include culture, education, and sometimes scientific research, what we call softer spots, but never was a woman put in charge of uh, the area seen as the most important for the party. For instance, the chief propaganda job, the chief, you know, organization job in terms of the personal arrangement, uh, the chief so-called economic policymaker, or the chief security chief, not to mention the military. Not a woman has landed on the, the uh, Central Military Commission ever. So 
uh, first of all, uh, the inclusion of a woman, I think, is mostly a ceremonial a gesture to show to the outside that there is some sort of uh, diversity within the Chinese uh, uh, decision-making body. But as we have repeatedly seen under uh, the leadership of Xi Jinping in the past 10 years, um, he's slowly elbowing away these ceremonial uh, gestures, um, and he has, you know, gradually... Uh, you know, place more priority over what he thinks are the most important things in Chinese politics, which is, you know, uh, of course, political loyalty, uh, you know, the uh, so uh, the competence of the officials, um, the uh, the pressure to uh, the resistance to high pressure, um, this kind of things. So, and when we look at the uh, front runners uh, to succeed Sun Chenlan. Uh, this year, the women, the the, uh, the the top women officials, we can obviously see a trend uh, which was different from five years ago, uh, which is uh, this generation of female leaders are less qualified than they were five years ago. All right. But of course, you can argue that the party could still, if they wanted to show political inclusiveness, they can always pick someone. But it looks like it's not the case. And it's just a uh, just shows that the party has some more uh, uh, some priority that they think there is more important than showing uh, political inclusiveness. I just want to say that if female officials were given the opportunities to prove themselves in the first place, for example, if there weren't so many bureaucratic hurdles or glass ceilings for them, if they were put in position to be in charge of economics and given the chance to prove themselves, there would be a lot more qualified women to be able to take up these important positions. Yeah, I totally agree. That's also a result of the systemic uh, restrictions that uh, female uh, officials and female politicians are facing in China and there is, a, you know, a, some sort of glass ceiling uh, everywhere uh, in Chinese politics for these uh, female officials. So much for uh, women hold up half the sky from what Chairman Mao Zedong said many, 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 many years ago. And it's such a stark contrast to what is happening in the reality where women weren't even allowed to take up one seat in the entire Politburo. But just let me move on. So, the, the number of seats in the Politburo, this time there are only 24 instead of 25. What does that mean? The number of seats, in, whether it was the Politburo or the Standing Committee of the Politburo, has always maintained at a um, odd number. That was an intentional uh, design by the Communist Party because even though there, there are all these closed-door consultation, closed-door, you know, uh, tug of war that the public may not be aware of, at least according to what the party has told the public, there has been, you know, significant debates within all these top bodies. So in the end, all of these debates would have to go through this motion of vote if they want to decide on some of the most important issues of the country. So that's why the number of seats of the Politburo and the Standing Committee of Politburo have always been an odd number. So 
it's a design to make sure that you know the chances of a tie vote would be minimum. What we can see at the 20th Party Congress is the number of seats of the Politburo have been cut down from 25 to 24. That would basically mean that the chances of you know having a tie vote would be much higher compared to the previous decades. What that would mean, I assume, is that whenever the Politburo see a tie vote in the future, a more important coordinator would uh, have to step in to walk the party through the political stalemate. And that coordinator would mostly be the core of the leadership, which is President Xi Jinping himself. So it seems like this is a landmark gesture representing the end of a collective leadership. So there is a lot more to come on that. And obviously, my dream will be leading our coverage on this front. We'll be watching your stories and um, looking forward to bringing you back very soon. Looking forward to that. Thanks. Wendy Wu is our political economy desk editor in Beijing. Welcome back to the podcast, Wendy. Hi, thanks for inviting me again. Yes, so we talked about the political side with Mai Jun just then. We would like to cover some other ends as well. So could we start with who is leading China's foreign policy? Obviously, Wang Yi was China's uh, foreign minister. Where has he moved to now and who is going to take his place? i like to share some of my thoughts about this. We already know that the new lineup of their leadership and the newly announced uh, list of the Central Committee over the weekend. And it is sort of the surprising that Wang Yi, especially already past uh, his, uh, the sort of retirement age, it is still remain on the uh, Central Committee. And while Yang Jiechi, China's top diplomat, has obviously retired uh, according to the list. So I think that if you ask who is leading China's foreign policy, I think maybe that Xi Jinping, the paramount leader, is the one who give a broad and a ground strategy of how China's policy, foreign policy would be. And uh, Wang Yi has the potential and has is very likely to replace Yang Jiechi as Xi Jinping's top diplomacy advisor and aide. And uh, he is also very experienced, especially over the past years, one, and China's relations with the Western world has escalated. He visited a lot of countries and did a lot of exchange on that. So Wang he has the potential to replace Yang Jiechi as the next top diplomatic aide, a diplomacy advisor to Xi Jinping. So Wendy, you talked about Wang Yi would be moved to become uh, Xi Jinping's top diplomatic advisor. So who is going to take up his place to represent China on an international arena? I think Wang Yi will still play a big role on behalf of China on the international relations issues on the global arena. But there is another diplomat who has been a surprise over the past week, who is Qin Gang. He is now China's top diplomat to U.S. And his election to the Central Committee of the weekend is a surprise. And that uh, has been interpreted by many people as a sign that he may become a front runner to succeed Wang Yi as China's foreign minister. So when you talked about Qin Gang being a front runner for Wang Yi's place, could you tell us a bit about him and why he might be a hot candidate for this role? Before replace Cui Tiankai as China's ambassador to the U.S., Qin Gang was a foreign ministry spokesman, and he also 
was in charge of the protocol and uh, European affairs as deputy foreign minister. He is also believed by many to be very close to Xi Jinping. And that also, with now, he is handling the most difficult foreign relations, I mean, with the U.S. one. And that makes his profile a little bit more matured and for the next foreign minister. So, Wendy... It would be impossible to do this podcast without touching on the implication of this party congress have for China's political economy. So could you talk about the current state of the stock markets in Hong Kong, Shanghai and Shenzhen? They have dived on the first trading day after the congress. How much of this is related to what was announced in Beijing and how much of this is about who was announced in the new leadership team? Right after the conclusion of the party congress over the weekend, there was some discussion and expectations to say that the stock market may plunge or react negatively this week. And uh, that is what we saw on the stock markets in Hong Kong and in the mainland, as well as the plunging yuan exchange rate against the US dollar in the onshore market and offshore market as well. But I want to say that the sentiment and reaction to the party congress outcome is just one of the factors behind those pessimism in the market. And there are also concerns about the China's economic growth in the coming months and uh, next year. We all know that party congress, the report delivered by Xi Jinping, a broad structure, broad roadmap for the next year. So it lacks some details on some economic policies. That uncertainties also raise some concerns among foreign investors. But the market turbulence cannot totally be contributed to people's disappointments or surprises to this new leadership. And there are also some other factors have already been reflected in the market's reaction, such as the worsening outlook of China's relations with the U.S. and the expectations of further containment from the U.S. on China's economy and its technical companies. Another thing I want to add is that we should look at the stock markets of Hong Kong and the mainland separately. And it is well understood in Western that stocks are barometers of economy, but this is not proven. This is not the case in the mainland China. So the market can it reflect some sentiment, but it does not tell that the economy is is so bad. But we have to be honest that there is a serious shortage of confidence on China's economy, and it is, has been already there before the party congress. So is there any expectation that some measures is going to be rolled out in the next few months to address this kind of concerns? I think it's a very good question, because even though we have announced the new leadership, that the formal appointment will be only confirmed next year in March at the two sessions next year. So during this period of time, or I would call it a transition time, China is expected to still face a also a hard time to trying to, to stabilize its economy, which is different from the previous years. China's uh, headwinds on economy is quite severe as it also needs to give some real push to restore business confidence, especially in the private sector, in the foreign investors, and also to revitalize economic dynamics 
such as those internet platforms, as well as other private economies. And maybe after the National People's Congress in March next year, there were some new measures to be announced to how to push forward China's economy, including how to further opening up to the world, to the outside world, and how uh, China is going to push forward and unwind some more details about the common prosperity and the self-sufficiency strategy. Yes, you talked about a common prosperity, and we had heard so much about this term over the past few years in this part of Congress. It seems like the weight of this catchphrase did not play such a heavy element as it was before. Could you tell us, is this something that China is still going to focus on in the future? Because a lot of people are concerned about this as it affects some of China's richest men and entrepreneurs. And everyone is talking about the runxue, you know, the exit of rich money going out of China. So could you tell us your thoughts about that? I think there are several ways we can look at this issue. If we go back to the Xi Jinping's flagship speech last year about common prosperity, we can find out that actually Xi Jinping has a very broad picture about how to address the social inequality in a broad way, which he thinks is quite critical for China to overcome the income trap. It is also a key step for China to become a a modernized society, especially in the economic terms. And this report he delivered during the opening ceremony of the party congress mentioned about common prosperity. And what has driven people more concerned is about the one new measures he announced, which is to regulate how the wealth is accumulated. But still, uh, similar with other issues, economic issues in China is a lack of clarity and lack of certainty on this, how it is going to push forward it. So that's one of the reasons why it has triggered many worries, especially among uh, rich and uh, super rich Chinese in the country. But on the other hand, China has also a middle income group, which is now reached to 400 million. And if China really wants to realize and give a give a substantial push on common prosperity, then it is also important to boost the group of middle income class. So uh, common prosperity also touches other areas such as how to address the inequality between the rural area and uh, urban area. And that also leaves one very challenging issue for the Beijing uh, is how to give a real push to revitalize the rural economy. So this question really requires us to look from different perspectives. I also want to mention one important thing is that given the currently the most critical issue for China is to ensure its economic growth to stay at above a certain level. And that is the fundamental thing for any other major push of those major economic strategy. If the economic growth cannot be sustained at the certain level, how Beijing can push forward this common prosperity strategy. I think that is a long-term issue that Beijing needs to think about it and trying to work out a fine plan and action plan on it. But most of the important issue right now is that it has to stabilize economy. And if it's getting too rushed about pushing this common prosperity, it will, on the other hand, hit the already weak economic recovery. 
So the constitutional changes have also reinforced the idea of dual circulation. And this idea talked about since um, 2020 that China will focus on the domestic market instead of exporting to the world. What does this mean for the future of economic policies under Xi Jinping's new team? China has always said that trying to dismiss concerns about China is closing door. And it said that China still needs foreign investors and still need foreign investment. And we can see that the government has released a new document to talk about attracting new foreign investors, expanding and encourage them to set up more innovation centers in China and encourage them to participate in this China's push on to tax self-sufficiency. It is true that China is trying to uh, move up its industrial chain and uh, to boost its domestic consumption. But uh, what should be done is actually to take concrete moves about opening up, about reform, so that can cement the outsider's confidence on China's economy and that can diffuse people's concerns about China is becoming more isolated from the rest of the world. So, Wendy, one other thing I get asked the most from my friends and the readers is that are we still on course to be expecting China will be open to the world and put a stop or, or a temporary stop to the zero COVID policy by March next year? Is that what you guys are still hearing in Beijing? I mean, there are strong expectations that China, to some extent, could loosen the zero COVID control or to get the implementation of this dynamic zero COVID policy more scientific and do excessive on it. Because from our observations in the mainland, the economy has been really hit hard, especially on the services sectors by the zero COVID policies. There are also many experts concerned about that. The zero COVID policy and sometimes too rigid and it's not sustainable. And China really needs to strike a balance about how to improve the expectations of a business on China's economy, how to heal the the economy and trying to take real moves or actions to stimulate the private economy and the sentiments, the confidence of foreign investment in China. That is the most thing many economists think are really crucial for China's economy right now. So it sounds like the expectations are still high for zero-COVID policy to be loosened by March, which is the end of um, China's most sensitive political seasons. I'm not the guy who can make the accurate forecast of that, but there are expectations that the loosening can be implemented a bit by a bit, maybe later this year or after two sessions in March next year. This is Wendy Wu, our political economy editor. Thank you so much for your time, Wendy. Thanks. All for this week's Inside China podcast. Don't forget you can read our ongoing political and economic analysis and reporting from our China desk on scmp.com. You can also follow our newsroom on Twitter at SCMP News. You can also follow me at GZMimi. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.